Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. You'll find 100 of these awesome interviews in my podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my catalog of past episodes to listen to them all. They're available on all podcast apps. Today's show is the 100th interview in the AA Recovery Podcast Series. To mark this important milestone, I'm thrilled to welcome Paul W., a man whose award-winning achievements in the music industry are beyond compare. His work has woven itself into the fabric of 20th and 21st century popular culture. His memorable songs have touched multiple generations around the world. But, as with many alcoholics, Paul's genius grew out of a Dickensian childhood, full of family upheavals and physical challenges that left him with little solace save his songwriting. By the time alcohol and drugs entered the picture in his early twenties, his musical talents had been honed into a career in which he enjoyed unbridled creativity and massive success during the 1970s. But Paul's burgeoning alcoholism cunningly resided offstage in the shadows of his own denial and the enabling of those around him. By 1989, after a decade lost to the disease, Paul faced the bleak reality of his alcoholism and its devastating effects on his life and those around him. At last, a series of God moments occurred that brought Paul to his knees at the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. Willing to embrace AA's program of action, he embarked on a spiritual journey that ultimately saved him. Over the years, he has offered his experience and hope to countless alcoholics, both inside and outside the rooms. Infusing his own fame and fortune with the humility of a well-worked and spiritually guided program has allowed Paul to be of wider service to those who need AA now or may need it in the future. His gentle yet powerful words of encouragement and hope are every bit as inspiring and heartfelt as the songs he created over the years. The challenges of producing an anonymous interview with someone so well-known are considerable, but both Paul and I turn the final outcome over to a power greater than ourselves. I believe you will be pleased with the results. Unfortunately, the sound quality is less than stellar, as Zoom was somewhat glitchy on the day of the interview. But give it a few minutes. Paul's story will whisk you away to a clear and wonderful awareness of his words. So please enjoy the next hour and 10 minutes of AA Recovery Interviews, my 100th podcast, as you listen to the insightful and exhilarating words of my friend and AA brother, Paul W. My name is Paul, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Paul. Thank you so much for doing this interview today on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. You are going to be the 100th interview that I've done for this podcast over the last two years, actually less than two years. And I am so pleased that you're able to do this, take time out of your schedule to do this. Howard, it's an honor based on the fact that, I mean, obviously, I am grateful for every breath in recovery. And I have found that in the last couple of years of my recovery, I've had this amazing ability to peer into people's lives through, through Zoom. And yeah, that's where we met. And I have such respect for you. And I actually want to do something that may be a little different. Can I ask you a question to start the interview? 
So you become the interviewer and I become the interviewee? I will. Oh my God. I'm nervous. I'm nervous. <laughs> Let me put on my sweater with the patches on the elbow and get my pipe. I'll sit and go. I was wondering, Howard. Yes, sir. It's interesting because I have been very open about my recovery. I speak a lot about being a recovering alcoholic. I mm -hmm. have I have honored our the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous for my entire life. I've been very, very proud that I've never seen my name printed next to the words Alcoholics Anonymous as a member. It's a, it's something I've really worked at. Mm -hmm. I wonder how you deal with the fact that we're openly talking about Alcoholics Anonymous on something that's offered at a public level. The answer to that is that before I started to do the the podcast, I did a very, very deep dive into how I could maintain anonymity in this time of electronic communications. How could I adhere to the 12 traditions of the program? And I felt that the way to do that with regard to the general service office guidelines for maintaining anonymity online, that as long as I do not publish pictures of individuals, and I don't, this is totally audio. And if I don't use their last names, which I never do, even when people refer to themselves with their last name, I cut that out. I never use the last names of anybody that you might talk about in this interview. And what's more, I won't say the name of any treatment center or any thing that would become readily identifiable of you, Paul W. And so I hope that allays some of the concern. Beyond allaying concern, it absolutely makes great sense. I can plunge into this with enthusiasm and honored to be here. One last thing I want to say about anonymity on the show, Paul, is this. I'm not expecting there to be a huge number of non-AA people wanting to listen to an AA interviews podcast, for one thing. But those people who do hear it, who know it's you, you're not anonymous to. They know you, they know your voice, but you're not going to be anonymous to them. The feedback I've been getting from different people around the world is that the ability to listen to a speaker meeting in the form of an interview has been greatly helpful to them. There are millions of people out there who probably should be listening to these, but I haven't done anything that is openly promotive. So I'm counting on word of mouth and attraction. I'm counting on people like yourself to tell your fellow AAs to listen, and to them you won't be anonymous. I just want to say that before we get started. I think one of the things that, that, that is also lovely about this, Howard, is I think you've probably gone to a few meetings where they're labeled as a conversation with <laughs> yeah. a drunk. And I always love those. I love when somebody sits down and has a conversation, answers questions, shares their, their experience, strength, and hope in, in this, this very kind of non-formal yeah. setting where it's friends talking to each other. And we certainly qualify as friends. I would take it, move it up one step to brothers. Yeah, we are. And I consider you a close brother. You know, what you just said about, you know, taking it up a notch or two. You and I have met before... Uh, a couple years ago, a couple, three years ago, I guess, at the Zoom meeting that we attend out of LA, which I'm not going to identify the name of the meeting. I actually met you several years ago and another time over the years at a fundraiser that we both attended. And I had the opportunity to hear you speak to a crowd that included a lot of AA people, but also a lot of non-AA people. And one of the first things I wanted to ask you was, how do you approach talking to a mixed group of people where there are AAs in the room and not versus doing a straight speaker meeting at a club or something like that? 
Well, the first thing I do is I turn it over to the big amigo. Oh, yeah. I don't know how to do this, but something inside me does. That's not your manager, is it, the big amigo? (laughs) Well, yes, the big amigo is my manager. (laughs) And uh, I have managed to, uh, you know, I have surrendered to a a level of management that cannot be topped. (laughs) That's great. Absolutely. But I think that there's, you know, first of all, there's an ego response. They want me to come to to this big fundraiser and 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 it's it's an annual event that raises a lot of money for recovery in this town. So it's like I'm leaning in, into it. I'm enjoying the fact that I've been chosen or asked to do mm-hmm. this. And and it's interesting. I think that ego is as a part of the success, incidentally, of Alcoholics Anonymous. As we get a few days and all of a sudden we know have a truth we can share with somebody else. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that there's like, like an ego response where we get to be the mentor. We we get to, to in, in a small fashion, pass on this truth and it feels good and it feels useful. And, I, you know, I always joke that I love the smell of usefulness in the morning. <laughs> That's true. How do you account for non-alcoholics in the room? In what way do you change what you're saying, the content, to make sure that the people who are not in AA get what they need, as well as the folks who know that you're in AA? Well, I slip into full tilt Pali Lama mode. You know, there there are elements of of my speech that I. It's when I say speech, it sounds like something I've planned in advance. It isn't. It's it's completely off the top of my head, uh, or more importantly, it's completely from the center of my mm-hmm. chest. I speak about this remarkable gift that we have been given. One of the tenets of Alcoholics Anonymous, I believe, is that we get to keep the miracle by giving it away. Yeah. Often so the newcomer can find us. And so when I'm speaking to a a mixed crowd, there are certain elements that I know about the disease. I know that we have a disease. We have a disease that was identified in the 60s by the American Medical Association. Mm -hmm. A disease that that is a primary disease. It's not, this is not a side effect of your girl leaving you. This is not a side effect of, of dad being, you know, there may be a genetic propensity to, you know, to passing on, a, you know, some elements of addiction mm-hmm. and alcoholism. But the fact is that my disease is of itself a disease. It, it is a progressive disease and it's potentially fatal. While I'm not ashamed of having the disease, I found that there were things I did when I was in the throes of my disease that needed to be needed to be repaired. Reparations that have been made over the past, what, 30? How many total years? And what's your sobriety day? I had my last drink September 21st, 1989. But I celebrate my birthday as March 15th. 1990. And the reason for that is because on March 14th, uh, the night before I started my first acting job, a TV miniseries called People Like Us. And I was so excited. I was nervous. Well, I was probably scared to death. I had a headache and my girlfriend said, do you want a Valium? And I went, I actually have a, a prescription for Valium at home. So I ate this Valium. And uh, and then I could not forget that I ate a Valium on March 14th. Ah. And I used to get fury. I go, God, why am I remembering that? It was not a slip. It was not a slip. And literally, and I don't remember specifically, but I think three and a half, four years later, uh, I realized I'd never shared that information with my darling sponsor, Jerry, who uh, since passed away. And at the moment that I realized that I hadn't shared it with Jerry, it became a slip. 
I mean, at that moment, I went, oh, my God, you talked to him about everything. You quit. You would question him in the middle of the night about the most mundane things. You didn't say anything about that during that period of time, huh? No, it was not a slip. And I wasn't going to I wasn't I, I did never occurred to me to mention it to Jerry. It is a, a remarkable, you know, what the ego is capable of hiding in, in little corners of your uh, your being. So when you did that, did he suggest that you just recalibrate that sobriety date? No, I, and he did not suggest it. I called him up and I said, Jerry, I need to talk to you. I have to change my date. And he went, oh, my, oh, my God. Oh, no, Paul. What? Oh, Jesus. Oh, all right. All right. All right. All right. We'll start over. What What happened? And I said, I took a Valium, one of Judy's Valiums. And he went, oh, well, when? I said, March 14th, 1990, which was far in the rearview mirror. It was a very dim date way back. <laughs> and he said, well, that's a great, you know, he said, you know, that's that's a, a great 10th uh, step, you know, promptly admitted when we were wrong. <laughs> so, well, and of course, it was anything but prompt. And I share in my story, when I, when I speak, I share about uh -huh. that. Inevitably, somebody will come up to me and say, you know what? I'm going to change my date because I talked to them about how when I did that. Yeah, it's as if you know uh, who was the used to talk about putting down the rock. Oh, uh, uh, Beach Sandy Beach used to talk about putting down the rock. It was like when I when I came clean when, when it occurred to me that it was mm -hmm. a slip, and I shared that with with Jerry, and I had such relief. It it was to me it was like a billboard that said, "You see, this is a process." I will give other examples of making making an amends. I I made a very thorough amends list that needed to be made, and there was one name that was not on this amends list that was somebody that I had had a, a, a very successful relationship with, and I won't mention her name. Uh huh. But it was around what I do for a living, and it was somebody that is is massively talented, and there is no way in the world that I owe this person an amends. Mm. And one night I was lying in bed and I was probably, oh, maybe a year sober at the time. Mm -hmm. And there's a there's a little place right between sleep and wake that's like a mail slot <laughs> where, where God delivers yeah <laughs> delivers information. And I I just was lying there. I was almost asleep when I sat up in bed and I went, oh my God, I owe that woman. And a man. Wow. And, I, and all of a sudden, I saw all the things she'd done to make me comfortable in the in a highly stressful work situation. The thing is that that I that I see, especially now with a little more time, that it, there's so much of what we're doing is a process. The things that you know that came up, you know, that were not a not a man, not on a man, not no. There's no a bingo. All of a sudden, that villain in the past, I saw somebody that is better described as a hero. It gave me a job that you know that was that was wonderful. That's such a graphic example of the way sobriety infiltrates our psyches, isn't it? Where yeah. you acknowledge that little male slot yeah. where you got the aha moment, and to me. That says a lot about your first year of sobriety and yeah. what you were getting. Let's look back a little bit because uh, so often in typical speaker meeting, people spend the majority of time on what it was like. And then they talk about what happened because those are kind of juicy and, and colorful and everything else. Yeah. Then they reserve the last five minutes or so to say, then I got sober and life's been great. Well, that's 30 years ago that happened. And so I always like to find out, you know, what's happened since you got sober, <laughs> the challenges, 
the tragedies, the gifts, the triumphs, I like to get what I consider to be the whole story. I will follow you wherever you lead. So when you look back, you've been sober 32 years and either you're 50 years old and got sober when you were 18 or you got sober a little bit later on in life. I was 49 years old when I got sober. I joked that I didn't have the best childhood, but I had the longest. Did you? <laughs> and, you know, the thing that, that is that that's funny and entertaining and I, and I kind of toss it in, you know, I have a tendency to to pepper my conversations or, or my, my pitches when I when I share with things that, that are are funny, but they're true. There's a part of me that that is, I think there are two elements, Howard. One one is that I'm more comfortable with an audience when they're relaxed and, and laughing makes them laugh. Right. There's a little bit of ego, that, but it's also a, a defense because as a kid, I went to nine different schools by the time I was in the ninth grade. Wow. I was always the littlest kid in school because I'm you know, very short. And, and when, uh -huh. I was, when I was four or five, six years old, I mean, I, I joked that I could run under coffee tables. I was smaller than my brother, two brothers. So I think that I, I've developed humor as a defense, and I think it, it's a, a useful tool that is sometimes a, a bit of a, a, a crutch. And it's a, like a veil, isn't it, in a lot of ways that people can't see the real you. They enjoy the outer you, but they don't get the inner story, do they? Well, that's true. And I, I think that beyond that, also, you know, I, I'm a songwriter. And what, what I do for a living is, is my connection to the world around me has been through my songs until I got sober. When I got sober, the immediate gift was I had this intimate, caring, meaningful relationship with other alcoholics and addicts that I had never experienced before, a level of safety and, and belonging and family that was just stunned. And that's just not available within the disease. You've mentioned that, that you were in nine different schools by the time you were in ninth grade. How did you end up in so many places? Construction. Um, my dad was a, a construction supervisor for large projects, hospitals, air bases, things like that. And so we'd we'd live in one spot for about a year, and then he'd move on to the next. And it, you know, basically, it was he was uh, employed by Peter Kiewit Sons Company, which was a huge construction company. Mm -hmm. So it was, I was born in Omaha. Uh, moved to to Albuquerque. Went from Albuquerque after a year or two to uh, South Dakota to Denver, and just kept moving. And he was a, a, a practicing alcoholic, a sweet man. I wish to God he had discovered Alcoholics Anonymous and willing to accept the gift that it, that it offered. Mm -hmm. But but he crashed a car in a single car wreck when I was thirteen years old. He hit the abutment of a bridge, and he lived a week afterwards. Oh my. My mother and my younger brother went to Denver, and my I had a, an aunt that I had never met, my dad's half-sister, that I found out later that he didn't like at all. <laughs> anyway, she said to my mother, let me take Paul for a couple of weeks to, to California, and while you move to Denver to be close to your sister, then he'll come back. And as soon as she got me away, she started with, she said, I want you to write a letter to your mother and say that you want to stay here because if you go home, you'll be taking the food out of your brother's mouth. And if you're really a little man, you'll write your mom right now and say you want to stay hmm. here. So basically, it was like like Dickens. I was basically stolen. And she'd write letters to my mom and say, Paul really loves it here. We got him a horse. He loves it. Mm -hmm. he loves and they were the people that I that I lived with uh, in Long Beach, California. From the time you were 13? 
Yeah, exactly. Now, one of my recent guests on the show moved many, many times when he was a kid. And he said one of the, the skills he got good at were at times an asset, other times a liability, was his ability not only to make friends quickly, but also lose them. And he got very good at losing people along the way. And that actually, in a way, kind of served him later on when it came to his alcoholism. Yeah. How, how would you, what would you say about that in your own childhood? making and losing friends. There was another element in, in my childhood is that when I was about eight years old, I think, I was really, really small and my dad was concerned. He's like, you know, you know, Bert, my mother's name was Bert. Bert, what, what's wrong with Paul? Why isn't he growing? And she took me to a doctor in Albuquerque who uh, said, I can make this kid grow. And he, said, and he gave me a male hormone shot. Mm -hmm. Well, it had the exact opposite effect because it kicked me into puberty at like that eight or nine mm. and what happens is then the bones start to close off and you stop growing i mean when i graduated from high school i was four foot six i'm like five two and shrinking now as i get older mm -hmm. but all of a sudden i'm here i am and the fact is that all of a sudden i was having all the the urges and and you know the male hormone kicking me into as i describe it i had no more interest in my tool chest but i was very interested in my aunt edna's chest i was just Dealing with with emotions and urges that were really uh, had no place in a, in the body of, of an eight or nine year old. My goodness! What happened as soon as they saw this? They stopped the shots. Uh huh. What it did is it just totally screwed up my body clock. You know, when I graduated from high school, I was four foot six, but I, I basically I looked I looked like a probably a 12 year old and i didn't hit puberty until i was like 22 or so so i went through high school with a body that looked like it was made out of cantaloupe my first prayer was i don't care how big you make me just cover me with fur because to get in the showers when you haven't you know hit puberty yet in high school is just torture you know so to, to go back to your question about making friends and losing friends the way that I managed, uh, first of all, I, I'm amazed at how little I felt about being different. I am amazed at how little sadness I felt about being ripped out of my family, that long before I drank like an alcoholic, I acted like one. And the sense that I would find a way to somehow avoid feeling something that was just too large and too devastating for me to, to, to feel. Hmm. Would you call that imagination or fantasy or what would you call that pre-alcoholic experience of getting away? I think it's escape. I think it's a self-induced numbness or distraction mm. probably saved me. You know, just as so many of us in the rooms, we'll hear people talking about how alcohol worked for them at a time when nothing else did and then it didn't. Mm -hmm. I think that so many people, you know, like all so much of the anger up against in this world is in fact you know if you look behind the behind the anger you'll find fear oh yeah i think that in the same fashion i think that that the alcoholism the, the act use of alcohol and other drugs and i use them all mm -hmm. uh the fact is that when, when you really look closely you find that it, it's self-medicating and it's it's a way to deal with something that you just don't have the you know either the skills to deal with you don't have the inclination because you probably haven't looked closely at it you know that's the that's one of the amazing 
gift, quote unquote, of, of getting sober mm-hmm. is that I was probably five years sober when all of a sudden it hit me like a palm frond blowing off a tree, but boom, and like that I had a that my my childhood was like Dickens. It was horrific. My dad was killed. I was ripped. I was stolen by an aunt. Mm. Uh, I, I you know my body was in, invaded with hormones that that kept me as a, a child, and and I remember. I mean, I acted, you know, in my 20s and, and I played kids when I was like 23. I'm playing 13 year old, whatever, you know. Mm. But I think that part of the, the element of, of making friends or or losing friends is that there was a, something between me and the kids that I did get along with. It was a part of me that, that the safest place I felt was on, uh, how would I describe it? It's it's like being on stage, but not being on stage. It's like I'm in the schoolyard, but I'm standing on the stage and I'm entertaining. And I, I think that some of the basic uh, tenets of, of how I dealt with the world made their way into the, the work that I do. Yeah, I get that. You know, what's interesting about your story is when I was a kid, I was small for my age. And I don't think I ever had a report card from first through maybe fifth or sixth grade that didn't say Howard does not know how to control himself in the classroom because I was always class clowning around. And my, my parents, I mean, my dad would beat me about that kind of stuff. But I remember one time he even made me, I, I did this funny bit where I would fall over in my chair and stay in the chair. It was a hilarious stunt. And I must have been only in about second or third grade. And my parents just didn't know what to do. My son, my dad comes to school, meet with the teacher, and he has me show him how I fell over in my chair. And he did that. He, he did it. Do it again. Do it again. I was so beaten up by that. Wow. But I was the class clown because nobody wanted to be with me any other for any other reason. I think there's an element to it. And and the it's one wonder you didn't become a stuntman, Howard. He <laughs> uh, <laughs> should have. Uh, uh, you know, the the fact is that for me, I think that that the strange attraction that I had at age nine, you know, to, to the opposite sex. I think one, I, I spent my life writing codependent anthems. I mean, it's like, I, you know, and I joke about that. I think that, that what happens to us, right back to preverbal, yeah. has some immense effect on, on our lives as adults. Mm, yeah, it does. You said it took you five years into sobriety to finally get to that mother load of pain and frustration and anger and all the other stuff from your childhood. Uh, either A, that was a mountain too high to climb at the early days of your sobriety, or what prepared you for that at five years? You know, I did Kleinian analysis at one point, and I remember uh, uh, you know, the therapist that I worked with, one of the tenets of being a great therapist is you don't tell somebody what they're feeling or what they're not saying. You, you keep guiding them to the place where they say it. Yeah. I think at one point she actually, I mean, it, it felt like she was sitting on my chest going, say it. Your mother abandoned <laughs> you. And I was like, yeah, but she was, she did the best she could. And yeah, but say it. How did it feel? Well, I know she was for, you know, probably, I mean, she was in, they were left with these, with children and, and with no money. And, my, and I was like, uh, we're resistant to those kind of truths sometimes because it feels like we're abandoning people that we love or we're tossing blame 
What she wanted me to say was not, this is your mother's fault. This is your mother's action because she didn't know how to do anything better, that she was tricked by somebody. But I wouldn't say any of it because I was defending my mother. Yeah. And you know where that shows up, Paul, at least for me, is in listening to other men's and my own fourth step was like this with with my sponsor over the years. But when you're doing a fifth step with somebody and they start going off extemporaneously with how it was so bad, but she she was really kind in other ways. And you have to put a stop and say, wait a second, we're not talking about you defending the person with whom you have a resentment. Exactly. Have you found that to be the case as well? Well, it's, I think it's what I just described with the, ther- the therapist. You know, essentially, so, you know, in fact, you are you are stepping into the role of, of therapist and doing it in the right way by saying, let's not, not go off. Because once we start defending the undefensible, uh, it's re- really easy to jump into the substance abuse. Yeah, I get it. I did a lot of psychotherapy before I got sober and the the psychotherapist never said anything like you're drinking too much. He just said, keep coming back. This works. Of course, he was talking about whatever he could do for me, which wasn't anything that AA didn't do much, much better. Yeah. But when you were looking at your own drinking behavior early on, how old were you when you started drinking? Well, when I was a little kid, like at company picnics on the road when I was uh, we uh, would uh, would you know get a little glass of beer. Well, let's say for your own uh, effect. I think in the '60s and my 20s, I began to experiment with with a variety of, of you know whatever was available. Yeah, you know uh, it was time of you know doing acid and and psilocybin and and drinking and uh, I mean uh, the constant for me once I started was alcohol mm-hmm. and cocaine. I mean, I had a big nose for a little guy. And, uh, Mm. you know, the joke is that alcohol made me feel big enough to deal with the rest of the world. Cocaine made me feel like I could shoot basketball for money. (laughs) I didn't want to leave the room because I'd miss what I was saying. That must have been like the pot at the end of the rainbow for you. When you first found those, huh? Well, I think what it, what it provided was a, a constant enthusiasm for my newly discovered talent, which was songwriting. You know, mm-hmm. and you know, it's like I can't talk about my life and I, and recovery without mentioning what I do for a living, and I don't mention my name, but it may lead some people to to knowing who I am. And if that's the case, I I am thrilled for them to know that that guy that was such a show offy mess on the Tonight Show, you know, actually was given a gift of of his own humanness and the absolute beauty in those moments when you feel things the way they actually are and you don't have to defend them you just experience yeah. and you get to share in what you find within your tribe and around the world that is an amazing gift too so when you first started doing the drugs and drinking is that when your creative uh juices really got flowing or were you already doing that sort of thing and it just enhanced everything there is, while the, you know, the confidence was, I'm sure, emboldened by the cocaine, uh-huh. and the nerves was probably calmed by the alcohol, there is, you know, the ultimate effect is that there's nothing I've ever done th- that probably made the window of my own creativity smaller any more than, than drugs and, and, and alcohol. Alcohol and other drugs, I should say, because... The fact is, when when I had my greatest success, I was not drinking or using alcoholically. Huh. Uh, excuse me, I, I, I'm, I was drinking and using 
but I think that that I was still in a place what I was writing was coming from, from the center of my chest. At that point, were you acknowledging your own alcoholism and drug addiction? No, first of all, cocaine was not was not uh, addictive in those days. <laughs> right, of course. I read it in the newspapers. Right. Yes. Evidently, it's not, but I am. I get that. But you know what? The, the thing is, that with the drugs and the, you know, the, the fact that drinking and using our mind-altering experiences, you know, the side effect of drinking and using is that it just your thinking and what you're feeling. And, and so the accuracy of what I was writing, as the years went by, you know, the 70s were amazingly successful for me as a, as a writer. The 80s were like, you know you're an alcoholic when you misplace a decade. The 80s were, in fact, this vacuum for me. <laughs> the lost decade. <laughs> the lost decade, exactly. And I think that what's interesting is after I got sober and I began looking at, at what I was had written, like from the 70s into the 80s and the like, mm -hmm. and what I saw in the 80s was an intellectualism that I would write things that were so clever, Howard. Oh my God, this is so clever. This look at oh, how wonderful is this, you know? Picture a diamond in the dark without the light, it cannot shine. If you need words to know your mind, what must my silence do? I mean, yeah, but what's it about? That's clever. That's really clever. Remind me to be, a, be moved by it later. You know, because, <laughs> because the fact is it, it was just it's it was like like a uh, song, uh, verbal masturbation. It sounds like your ego had a voracious appetite at that point. It did and does. And, and I just found something bad that tastes a lot better. And that's the truth. And, and the, the way the world fits without all that crap in my system. Yeah. The way I fit in the world. And there are times when I feel like a kid in the candy store. And, and it's called waking up. You know, it's just wonderful. It is amazing. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, one of my other guests was a very, very well-known sports figure. And one of the things I've, I've wondered about over the years is I've had the opportunity to meet people who were well-known, either their notoriety by virtue of being sports or uh, entertainment industry or, you know, big corporate people, is... The amount of enabling that went on in their lives to be able to support their alcoholism way beyond the point at which they might have gotten the notion that they should stop. I remember one guy, I had him lead a meeting for me one time, and he said, it's so hard to acknowledge you're an alcoholic when they're wheeling wheelbarrows full of money into your office. Yeah. And they're telling you that you can't possibly be an alcoholic because you are so great. Could you address that a little bit? Yeah, uh, it's interesting. There. There was one guy that, that out of all the people that I dealt with, there was one human being that sat down with me and he said, you know, I'm really worried about you, Paul. He was my, my music director. Hmm. And uh, he said, I'm really worried about you. He says, the alcohol and the, and the, and the booze is just so totally out of control. I just, I, really, I was really scared for you. I fired him. Hmm. I fired him on the spot. I mean, uh, I got sober and you know, we immediately started working together again. I went... Well, you know, and I made amends about that. How far into your uh, alcoholism did that happen? Had you already been drinking and using a lot of years? Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, there, there were other people that were very effective in my career as managers and the like. And, and that also, I, in, in retrospect, I look back and I go, they were addicts as well. It's difficult to put the label of, of mentor, you know, guiding light parent on somebody who's equally as screwed up as you are. We'll be right back. 
My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book, if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. So nobody was noticing there's a naked emperor in the room. And especially when people's livelihoods depend on that person staying just the way they are. At what point within your disease prior to getting to AA, did you start to acknowledge that it was a problem? And I probably should do something about it, whether you did anything or not after that. I take very little credit for anything that, that exploded into adulthood. Out of, uh, you know, I left my wife and, and children, when my children were very small, I left my wife and kids for a, a 22-year-old psych major mm. who was the first person that ever had the courage to, you know, to, to consistently tell me, I love you. I love you too much to watch you die. So I've got to leave. And, uh, it, you know, as codependent as a human can be, I, I went, wait a minute. That's it's amazing you say that because I was just thinking of going to treatment. You know, you know I mean, I, I guarantee you the last thing I wanted to do was go to treatment, but I did not want to live without her. She was, quote unquote, the one. And the two of us made one healthy person, her. Her. Oh, so, uh, so uh, I went to a place in in Santa Barbara called. Well, uh, I let me. I'm not going to mention the, the name of the place. I uh, having listened to you before this conversation, but I will say that that they used did what what is referred to as aversion therapy. Aversion, right? And basically, what they do is they make you very very ill, you know, and uh, uh-huh. and then they ask you, you know, if if you want to drink, and and you drink everything, every possible combination of of booze. And you get very, very ill, and uh, you, then after after you've been so sick, you know, all of which was caught in a bowl on your chair, which is especially built for this occasion, they put you in a room with a towel with the contents of that bowl around your neck, oh. and and uh, for like three hours to think about it, and then the next day they give you sodium pentothal and ask you if you want to drink, and if you say yes, you go back for more vomiting. What made you want to do it that way? as opposed to going to a resort treatment center? I had a first, I don't think I even thought about or knew about uh, just regular rehab and treatment. Uh-huh. But I had a friend who I had worked with a great deal who was an out-of-control alcoholic and addict who went to this place. And it worked, you know, it was a, he was a success story. You know, uh, this is a place where they would call, they would ask you after how you were doing. And for seven months, I managed to, based on just pure poly willpower, managed to not drink or use. You know, and it was funny because they said, I remember, one of the things I remember is when I would go to have the uh, the shot of sodium pentothal, they'd say, you know, Mr. W, we're... Uh, 
we're worried about you. I said, why is that? I said, because you're always early for the sodium pentothal. <laughs> I, I loved it. I love falling into myself unconscious like that. Oh, man. But it worked for seven months. Seven months. Seven months. I did not drink or use, and I was a delight to be around, I guarantee. So when you were under that particular influence of that treatment, and certainly even the big book mentions the Belladonna treatment, I'm sure it was successful for some people for a period of time, but when you were under that treatment and reacting to alcohol the way you did as part of that treatment, what was it like going to parties and doing the other things that somebody in your field might do? Did you get physically ill being around it? The smell, did it make you nauseous? No, I didn't. And I didn't party a lot. I was, I isolated more at that point. All I wanted was to be around her or the one. What happened is, you know, Howard, I went to, and it's, this speaks volumes about the power of our will, our willpower. I went to Jamaica to work on a project at seven months. Mm -hmm. And I was supposed to be writing songs for this musical that they brought me under to, to write the songs for. And I was staying at a home in, in Ocho Rios, beautiful home in the hills with a pool. And I, instead of writing the songs that I was supposed to be writing, I stayed up one night and was up till probably four in the morning and writing a song that I, all I wanted was another hit. Mm. I, knew, I knew that, and it's funny, but not another hit of, of cocaine, not another hit of alcohol, but another, a song, a hit, to have a hit will bring me back. This is all I need, and I think I've got something going here. And I stayed up most of the night writing a song. I recorded it on my little recorder. I went to bed. I got up around one o'clock in the afternoon. I went out by the pool. I sat by the pool. I've got my little recorder. And I listened to the song that I had written. And it was like, I, I don't remember the words, but the melody was like, I took my place beside you, Lord. But I, I remember the song. And I listened to it. And I realized sitting there that morning or that afternoon that I had rewritten, I swear to God, O Little Town of Bethlehem. I took my oh, place beside you, uh, O Little Town of Bethlehem. <laughs> at that exact moment the the houseman the butler whatever you call him came walking up with a white jacket on and with a tray with ice and open uh, coke bottles and a, a big bottle of rum and he said mister would you like a rum and coke perhaps and i said of course huh. i would like one and i said i just want one i want one small rum and coke uh, and then we'll get on with the work that has to be done. I had so at two o'clock in the afternoon in Ocho Rios, I had one rum and coke. At two o'clock in the morning, I was at Bob Marley's grave explaining reggae to a lot of black people I didn't know. And I was just <laughs> off and running and lying through my teeth. And it's like, you know, you add alcohol and you add a substance like cocaine. And something happens where all of a sudden it's not enough for me to be me and who I know. I start adding to it and I start, I don't I know nothing about reggae. I know nothing of, like everybody else. I, I love Bob Marley's music, but I have no, no special expertise. I'm just lying. I got sober and found out I'm not a pilot. I, <laughs> years that I was a pilot, you know, and I think that examining that tendency, you know, I, I talk about the fact that if, if somebody walks up to me and they say, you're in the, mu the music business, do you know Bob Munderson or whatever? And, and my head is already going up and down. Like, no, Bob, 
I have no idea who this person is. Yeah, it's that fear of being rejected, isn't it? That fear of not knowing or not yes. being who you think they want you to be. You know what? It's the exact polar opposite of what gets us sober, which is when we walk into a room and say to a bunch of people that are absolute strangers, oh, my God, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm dying and I need your help. The opposite of that. Yeah. Eventually, my recovery will catch up with my bobbing head and I will say, I don't know who that person is. It's still there, isn't it, Howard? Oh, yeah, I, I think. So, so how many years was this that you slipped after the aversion therapy? Not years, seven months. Seven months. How long before you hit the Doors Bay A did this happen? Probably two, maybe two or three years. Okay. So from the time in your early 20s until the time in your late 40s, you were an alcoholic all the time or were you a heavy drinker turned into a problem drinker when did you turn the corner from being able to handle it to actually becoming an alcoholic i think in my late 30s in my early 40s i just you know what i what i remember doing is uh in my 40s i would quit one or the other i would i would quit drinking mm -hmm. i'd be so wired i'd never slept and, I, <laughs> yeah. and then i'd quit you know the alcohol you know and it's like I was also the only alcoholic or rather the only cocaine addict that I know that just got massively fat because when I'd run out of cocaine, I would eat everything in the house. You know, I weigh when I, I weigh 130, I think now maybe 132. And I when I was drinking, I would, when I quit, I weighed 187. Oh, my gosh. You know, and I'm 82 years old and I feel like a tired 34. I've never been healthier, never been more supported in not only my physical health, but in my spiritual health and in my, and in my mental acuity. It's just, you know, that there is something that to be said about the level of rest and the, the calm and a sense of security of knowing you're, you're a part of a tribe. So... In your late 30s and your 40s, you were building up to that, if not moment of clarity, a turning point. Did you have one turning point and moment of clarity or did you have several? What was what did that look like in your life? Well, I was one of those people that would throw his drugs away. I would go, my God, I don't ever, ever do this. I don't need this. And I'd throw them away. And then the drugs that I had just <laughs> used would wear off. And I go, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> so, uh, and I love the theater of going to a therapist and and, and we'd take my little bottle of, of cocaine with a few scrapings left in there. We'd go in and I would break the bottle on his bathroom floor and throw everything in the trash. And, and then I'd get all this attention. And then I'd go get my car reached under the seat of my, of my little... <laughs> where I kept the pop-off bottle because a, a Smirnoff's bottle would not, or rather a Stolichnaya bottle would not fit under the seat of the Ferrari. <laughs> so I would reach under, grab my pop-off bottle full of, of Stolichnaya, oh, have a tube because there was a two-gram bottle in my other pocket. You know, So it became theater. And, uh, but here's what happened. Here's what happened. I cannot take credit for any kind of a spiritual awakening uh, in this remarkable process. There's a man named Gary G that goes to the meeting you and I meet in. Uh -huh. And I think you may have heard this story, but he was is a promoter. Of, of, you know, he promotes entertainment. I went to, he lives in Oklahoma. I went to Oklahoma City 
to perform. I was it was in September of 1989. Uh, I had been up probably three days and nights with it with zero sleep. I was drinking, using, taking a little bit of antibus, exactly. Mm-hmm. Taking a little bit of antibus because I wanted you know, the one to see that I was not drinking or using. <laughs> anyway, I spent the night before the gig in, in a, a hotel in Oklahoma City, stayed the night, continued to use. Then when it was an afternoon gig, there was a knock at the door. I opened the door. It was the promoter standing there. We walked down the hall and we're having a conversation like two humans. And as he describes it, it looked as if somebody grabbed me and threw me as high as my own head against the, the wall. Uh, I was tortured for about 40 minutes. By, I had a complete psychotic meltdown. I was thrown down what I believe were escalator stairs. There's no escalator in that building but the stairs were moving to me mm. i could see in his car as he drove me to the venue to give me to my band to take care of me he was scared to death he said later i could look at the side view mirror of the car and i would see like this little monster that was biting my ears and my neck he he basically you know turned me over to, to the guys in my band to, to deal with me they canceled the gig for that day and told the audience that I'd had a reaction to my meds, which was the truth. Those were your meds. My meds. I went back to the next day. I flew back to Los Angeles where I continued to drink. A, about a week later, and maybe 10 days, I don't know exactly how many, mm-hmm. uh, in a blackout, I called a doctor. And I believe it was a Friday. And Saturday morning, he called me and he said, I found a place for you. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, you called yesterday and said you wanted to get sober you needed to get sober and he said you seem really really sincere Mm -hmm. i said somebody's been using my body again (laughs) and uh and started to hang up and then maybe that's where the moment was i went yeah you know what i don't want to drive loaded with my kids in the car anymore Uh, i don't want to sneak out the puppy door with two huskies watching me because i go down to the place where i have them drop off the cocaine while the girl's sleeping upstairs Mm. and i went to treatment okay let me jump to 10 years later 10 years later i'm in nashville i've gone to nashville to write songs again i I finally returned after that when i was newly sober i didn't know if i'd ever connect to music again didn't matter because all I wanted was to be around recovery. I went to TLA for a year and got my certification as a drug and alcohol counselor. I mean, I was, I was just home, you know, just relieved of the cravings was such a, I mean, I could cry talking about it. It's just, mm-hmm. it was remarkable, but I go to Nashville to write. I'm staying at a hotel. And while I was there, I was asked, and you know, as the regular meetings that I would go to any time in Nashville, mm-hmm. was to speak at the jail. So I went to the jail to speak. And what are we like when we come out of a jail after we've spoken? The ego is talking <laughs> to us. I'm like this combination of Jiminy Cricket and comedy. <laughs> I went and I told the truth to I was just so full of self, you know. <laughs> yeah, a service saint. Oh, it's a service <laughs> the Pali Lama. That's, the Pali Lama. That's, you know, that's where that's when I picked up the Pali Lama. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I go back to the hotel. I am floating on air because I am useful. The lobby is so packed for like three nights in a row with these guys that are all tall, you know, six feet tall uh-huh. with the big buckles and everything. 
and it's a convention. Uh, I don't know what the convention is, but I make my way through it, and I go up to my room with my magnetic key, and for the third night in a row, the God, the key will not work. And I just, you know, I, it's a quick trip from Gandhi to Himmler <laughs> for me. I'm just like, God, what's wrong with this? God damn it. I go downstairs. And I and I make my way through this crowd, and it's like God, and, so, and it's the drinks and belt buckles, and go, you know, I'm living in a world of belt buckles <laughs> and bosoms in my life. So I go up to the desk, and I, I've learned restraint of pen and tongue in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I'm nice to the guy, I say, no, it's not your fault, but why should I have to make my way through this crowd three nights in a row? At that moment, there's a tap on my shoulder. Mm. And I turn around and there's a guy standing there with it. it says Gary G. And he says, I don't mean to bother you. I just want to say hi. I uh, I booked you like 10 years ago. And I went, oh, my God, you're the promoter. And he said, yeah. He said, you know, this is we're all promoters. It's like, you know, we book <laughs> we book rodeos and clubs and, and performing arts centers and all. But I booked you 10 years ago. And I said, you're the guy that when I did my <laughs> Linda Blair interview, Lick me, lick me. My head spinning around. He said, "Yeah, that was me." And I was like, "Oh well, I'm ten, I'm ten years sober. I went to UCLA. I got my certification as a drug addict. I just spoke at the jail. Blah blah, Polly. This, blah blah, Polly. That." And he said, "Yeah, I heard in the rooms you were sober." And I went, "Oh my God, are you a friend of Bill?" And he reached in his pocket. And he pulled out a chip for 17 years. Yeah. So I was like, you were seven years sober when that happened. He said, that's right. I said, what did you? I said, I was bad, wasn't I? He said, oh, he said, oh, I thought you were dying. Mm. I said, I've never, I don't think I've ever seen it worse. He said, just, it was awful. I went, yeah. I said, what'd you do? He said, I called my sponsor. A lot of information there. You know, you run to somebody that's out of their mind, you know, and about to die, call your sponsor. So I said, yeah, I get it. I said, what What did your sponsor do? He said, he hung up on me. And I said, he, he what? He said, he jumped into action. He, he hung up. So he could start calling alcoholics, and I did the same thing. Hmm. And we put together a prayer circle of alcoholics in Oklahoma City that would all have the same prayer, that you would be relieved of your of your alcoholism and your suffering. And about a week later, I called a doctor in a blackout. And it, it's like, you know, up to that moment, Howard, I, I think I would, you know, I'd always say it's all a gift. I mean, and honestly, you put it on your headstone, it's all a gift. But the fact is, there was a part of me that, that felt like I had worked for it. At that moment, I was given, that was my spiritual mm. awakening. At that moment, because I went, you didn't work for anything, Paul. You have been given the most spectacular life, life-giving gift. And it's just, you know, everything changed. And the other thing that ha happened at that moment is I knew in my heart, absolutely, that my making that call in the in the middle of a blackout, is connected to the prayers that were said by those alcoholics tonight that I have gone back to thank a couple times. For you to come to that realization at 10 years sober, to me speaks about the continuous appearance of miracles. As long as I stay sober, stay the course, stay of service to other people, yeah. 
But how amazing that must have been in 10 years. Did you ever wonder or think about Gary had that opportunity, knowing what he knew about you that day? And incidentally, I've, I've, I've interviewed Gary. He's an amazing man. But have you ever asked him, actually, why he didn't take action that day that you were in the car melting down? Did you ever wonder why he didn't say something to you or? Oh, I wasn't in my body. I mean, there was nobody there to talk to. It's like, you know, how many times have you had a seriously wet drunk call you and want to talk about why they're not going to get seen? You say to them, I would imagine, you know what, call me you know, when you're not loaded and let's have this conversation because I care about you, you know. Mm-hmm. I also think that he was having the reaction of a man who has just promoted a gig, God knows what kind of money he had on the line, and the guy that he brought in to, to sing his songs, you know, and entertain these people, which was a full mm-hmm. house out there, is not is not there. He's about to die. So I don't think it was a time to to for a conversation with me. I was busy being bitten on the neck by, by little imaginary monsters. So he took it back to his prayer group. And 10 years later, there you are. And I know I see him every week on our meeting. And seeing the connection now between the two of you is just, it gives me chills to think about what a what an amazing gift that must have been for you at that time. And just the lesson in, in the story, he called his sponsor. You know, it shows up with this. He drops me off. He calls his sponsor. What do I do? You know, I don't. And I would imagine at 10 years sobriety, he didn't even say what he to do. He called his sponsor to get the the circle started, start calling people. And if I ask him, I would be willing to bet that they both got on the phone, called one alcoholic after another. And each of those alcoholics probably called mm-hmm. a couple, you know, I've been to that meeting, his Saturday morning home group meeting in, in Oklahoma. And I've told this story to the, the people in the in that meeting. Mm. And some of them were part of that, that circle, I'm sure. Did they know who they were praying for? I had never asked that question. The, re- the reason I was wondering was because there are a lot of people who sit in meetings and listen to people who are immensely rich or powerful or big entertainment stars and that sort of thing. And the thinking is, well, of course they get it. Of course they can stay sober. They've got all this, you know, here I am sitting with here with very little and I'm sober. And so we start comparing our insides, other people's outsides within recovery. Have you experienced that before? And how do you address that when when you come upon somebody who is uh, lamenting about how they've been sober so long? So why aren't things going better? Or why is their life still going like it is? You know, I remember being at, at a my regular morning meeting when I first got sober and there was a place that I went. So I remember I would show it was 7.30 to 8.30, Monday through Friday. Mm-hmm. And there were other times, you know, then I had a Saturday meeting. So I was at this AA clubhouse every every morning for mm-hmm. years. I go and have my first cup of coffee at the clubhouse. I'm still friends with the guy that made the worst coffee there. <laughs> the best coffee I ever had in my life and the worst tasting. But I remember a guy walking in and saying, and excuse the language, but he walked in and he went, uh, who the fuck shows up at an AA meeting in a red Ferrari? And I said, I do. I said, I was dying and I needed to be here. You know what? That's not actually true. That I remember, I, I, I'm hoping that's what I said, but I confronted him. I don't really remember, but my mouth decided it wanted to tell a good story. And, and you have just witnessed recovery in action. 
you've just witnessed me basically saying something I wanted to say without thinking about it, recognizing that it's a lie because I don't remember what I said, it up on the spot. Yeah, catching it mid-sentence. That To me, that is the most powerful sign that the 10th step has infiltrated my psyche. (laughs) When I can be right in the middle of lying and then stop myself, and it's very awkward. Yeah, Yeah, of course I've seen that movie. No, I haven't seen that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What is there about that, that that hard wiring that it's the first place we go? Wouldn't you think after all these years sober, it would have gotten rewired? Well, here's what I would say to you. I would say, Howard, you're not lying. You know, but there is a element of, and some people recognize it as the disease. But it, there is some, there is something inside you that is of a creative process, enjoys putting things that are meaningful together for people. I think that what we're motivated by is, I mean, it's one thing to sit on on a bar stool and go, "Yeah, I was friends with Bill Clinton when he was," you know, and when you never met Bill Clinton, you know, but Bill Clinton, you know, was a plumber, you know, and to augment a story, I recently was given an award. It was a very, very big deal, and I had prepared a speech for it, and uh, I'm trying to decide if, if I want to tell this or not. I think I do. Okay. And you can cut it out if you think it's inappropriate. I'll give it full measure of my editing acumen. I was given an award that is named after a great songwriter who I actually met very briefly when I heard that he was in the recording studio where I was working. You mm-hmm. know, I heard that he was in mixing a, a record, very famous songwriter. I'm not going to remember his name or, or any of the specifics, but I had to meet him. So I waited for probably an hour by the, the coffee pot. And eventually he came out and I said, hi, Mr. So-and-so. I'm Paul. I just wanted to say hi. And he said, it's nice to meet you. And he went back. That was all there was to it. And then he popped his head out and he went, said my whole name. And he quoted a line from a song. Uh, it's like that, Paul. And I went, yes, sir. And it was like whatever. And the way I've told it for years is that he put a thumbs up and went back inside. Okay, now I'm going to be given an award named after this man. But the yeah. morning of the thing, I'm also at a, a meeting of the board of directors of a recovery organization I belong to. We, you know, give money to whatever named after somebody wonderful that passed away. So I'm sitting there talking to the guy that's from a, a major, major rehab chain who is a warrior for the light. And I say to him, you know what? I met this guy that the award is named after. And for years, I've been telling this story. And I have to tell you, I, there's part of me that's beginning to wonder if part of it is true. I know I added the thumbs up. But beyond that, I remember I can actually see his face when he said something that I thought was that line from my song, Mm -hmm. that it may not have been the line from my song because I was so thrilled. And I went, yes. And I repeated the line of the song and he had a weird look on his face. And I never really thought about it to this extent, but I may have been lying. Mm-hmm. Really, I said, and I think I'm going to clean it up tonight. So when I got on stage to accept that award, I made that amends. I said, you know what? I think I've been lying for for 50 years about when I met this man, and I need to clean it up right now. And this is why I'm sober so many years, and a part of our recovery to maintain it is to get rid of it. And like, I'm not sure, but I think it's obviously I added the thumbs up. And I said, it's a question to me that I think I need to, if if I was lying all these years, I need to clean it up. 
I had done it once before when I spoke. I was uh-huh. out there as part of a television show and a thing to raise money. And I lied through my teeth from the stage. This is Ford and the president in the audience that I was sober. So when I went back, when I was sober, I made an amends to Mrs. Ford and the president from the stage. I oh. went, Nelly, the last time I was here, I lied. <laughs> and it's just, it's just, you know, it's that put the rock down moment that comes after that. Uh, and I think that whether it's in a car riding with somebody, you remember something you lied to them about, or standing on stage, or uh, you know, or even with a, a camera on you, or a, a sitting in front of a microphone talking to a, a friend about your recovery, yeah. I think the greatest gift that we're given is that we found a way to get rid of that garbage. And rigorous honesty is rigorous. Yeah. To me, from the time I was a kid, the hard wiring says, don't let anybody catch you not being the person who you think they want you to be. And that's a tough one, isn't it? (laughs) And then we get to that 10th step and you did that and no way in the world I'm going to cut that out of this interview. That is a great story. To me, what it also says about you, Paul, is you are a man who, in my estimation, is willing to go to any lengths, not only to get what you've gotten, but to keep what you have and to pass it on. Exactly. And again, we get to keep the miracle by giving it away. That that amazing feeling of being useful. Of I get up in the morning and I say, surprise me, God which implies complete trust. Here are the reins to my day. I never got high enough. I tried, but I never got high enough to see into the future. You can see it all. And here's the reins. Do with me as you will. And the other thing is lead me where you need me, which is just every time I'm led to someplace where I can be of service or I can help, there's something that I bring back that is, and it's many times it's something that as absolute, you know, as a connection that wants me to do something else. And sometimes it's a job. Yeah. That's not the reason we do it. We do it because it's just because we can. Yeah. One of the things I I've noticed, I like to ask my guests on the interview, about the gifts that they've experienced. But what's interesting about our conversation today, you've described the outcome from those gifts. You've described what happens when you stick close to the program. You've described gifts to me without actually stating them as gifts. It's beautiful to see. It's a movable feast. Recovery yeah. is a movable feast and it's and it's food for the soul. It's just, you know how your car seems to run better when it's clean? Yeah. You know, you're, you drive through the, the car wash, and as soon as you get that windshield really clean, there's something about the car that just, I swear to God, it's a little quicker, quieter, It's like, or in my case, noisier. I prefer the competitive automobile. Yeah, I get that. I think that it, that applies to us, too. I think that what happens as we begin to discard those pieces of ourselves that are pure defense, fear-based, and, and all of a sudden, we're connecting with the world around us in a way that is courageous, but we're not even thinking courageous. What we're thinking of is, wow. That wow factor is what keeps me coming back and keeps me believing that AA has enriched my life. That's why I stay sober so I can be a sober member of AA to give back. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you something that I've asked a lot of the guests and some of them felt okay about it being asked. Others were glad I asked it. Others weren't quite sure what to do with it. But this is the question. If you, Paul W., were able to, knowing what you know today and everything that you have today, go back to a Paul at some other time in your life from zero to where you are today, 
What would you tell that Paul about the future and about the Paul that you've become and how to get there? Listen to me at this moment and listen every day better than I did. Mm. Listen and be still and dispose of the fear of the, the future. I mean, it's just, it's like, I wish I could say it more succinctly, but I I, you know, I want little Paulie to know you're going to be fine. Mm. You're going to be all right. I wouldn't want the the little boy Paulie to, to, to act differently for me. I would like to have, you know, I would like to have been a much better dad to mm. my kid because mm. I was not there. I had a recent experience with my daughter. Mm-hmm. Where she'd you know gone through her home almost being burnt out in a terrible fire mm-hmm. that, that went went through the entire community. Uh, it was all the stuff she was going through, trying you know, terrified that she'd be able to to detox her home and keep it. Mm-hmm. With two small children in the house, you know, and, and there was a certain point where she was fearful and expressed it to me, and I was able to be there. And there were moments where I saw her get aggressively thrilled with what she was learning about how to do what she needed to do. Mm-hmm. And she's a therapist, and I find her all of a sudden really, really loving the construction aspects of what she's learning about. And at a certain point, she turned to me and she said, you know, Dad, you've hit full tilt, Papa Bear. Mm. It's the best review I ever got in my life out. I cry just repeating it. That's beautiful. It's just so wonderful. And and so for my kids and, and for the people, you know, th- that I mistreated or treated with the lack of respect they deserve, the jobs that I showed up drunk for, I would love to have been who I am today in, in those moments. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my 10 years of just hardcore addiction are perhaps the most important years of my life, including the work that I've done as a songwriter. I would have to say that what I got out of that moment of rescue, Mm. that moment of admitting I was lost and was rescued, to this day, the most precious thing that that we get to observe is somebody coming back. Somebody that's sitting there going, lying about i got five years whatever like that and they start mumbling and they can't talk and then they sit there quietly and they slump and they say you know what i don't even think i have today i i think i had a drink after midnight i can't do this anymore and to have somebody in that place in their life that was bad as it gets in that moment of what feels like disgrace you peel away the diss and you're left with just the grace of that moment when somebody is so courageous to share with us who they are at that moment, like you did and like I did at one point in our lives. And all of a sudden, an entire circle of alcoholics sitting in, the, in a circle lean forward with nothing to offer but love and complete caring for that person who is sharing this holy moment with us. And that is an element of Alcoholics Anonymous that I can only try to describe to people yeah and the thing is it builds a gratitude fire in the center of my chest that burns higher and warmer and sweeter every day of my life it's the point at which amazing grace materializes yeah and demonstrates itself in our lives isn't it yeah i love you Howard. i love you paul you are really terrific thanks so much for doing this today it's truly all a gift and i i have enjoyed this i cannot believe the amount of time that's gone by and that speaks volumes to how much i love being here with you yeah we share the same kind of spirit don't we we do indeed god bless you my friend thank you
Well, my friends, that's a wrap for the 100th episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Paul W., for sharing his incredible story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this series by following the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and all other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. <laughs>